Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. This week, you will hear N.D. Wilson's talk, Troublemakers, from our audio collection titled Makers, Grace Agenda 2012. When I was asked to speak at this event, they let me decide what I was going to talk about, Dr. Herb. Where are you? There you are. And I said, music making. <laughs> but that, to be honest, would have made too much trouble, I think. And that, that helped me figure out what it was that I should actually talk about, where my fundamental instincts are. Troublemaking. Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward, Job 5.7. Man that is born of a woman is of few days and full of trouble. A little bit later in Job, chapter 14. For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Good word there, vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. Ecclesiastes 2.23. I would say except for sometimes in the night. Usually after a long, hard day and then two fingers of scotch. Then his heart finds some rest, maybe. Trouble, trouble, trouble. I get, could I find any more verses about trouble? I've got two from Job, one from Ecclesiastes. I could hop over to a little book known as Lamentations, maybe. You could go through psalm after psalm after psalm. You can dig into the Proverbs. You can go looking for trouble passages in scripture. Jeremiah, as it turns out, wishes he had not been born. The psalmist says that he has been laid low in the dust and shown sore troubles, and that's just in one psalm. Job went through plenty. We just sang psalm, a portion of Psalm 22, and there's plenty of trouble there. Bowls of Bashan, dogs, strength that is dried up, bones, that are unknit, heart that is wax. I mean, you think about all the things that are in, just in that one psalm, there is plenty of trouble. Job went through a lot of trouble. Solomon said that greater knowledge gave him an even greater burden of trouble. That's Solomon. So you have, you know, Sheba showing up and looking at Solomon, and it's like, ooh, wow, look at this court. Look how much he knows. Peacocks you know, 300 concubines, 700 wives plus. And Solomon says, I am burdened. And of course, we all know that with the 700 wives and the 300 concubines. <laughs> That's as much trouble as you could possibly ever find anywhere. And it's not the wife's fault, by the way. From Psalm 60, this is in the ESV. And to be totally honest, I alternate translations and references based on which, well, Personal preference, let's say that. And it's almost verse to verse. Because there are some verses that are really strong verses, then you, you jump in the ESV and there's, it's like, well, it just, it's like it pulled a punch a little bit. So you hop to the King James and rarely the, the NIV where you find a little, bit, a little bit more juice. But this one's from the ESV. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. That's from Psalm 60. The King James there says, you've made us drink the wine of astonishment, which I find to be delightful, but for the wrong reasons. 
It's like the wine of astonishment sounds better than it actually was in that, in that reference. Of course, even setting out to assemble verses on the subject of trouble is more than a little futile. Go to you know, some Bible software, do a study on, start looking for hardship, trouble, struggle, pain. Look for any of those things and then just watch the verses clock in because the truth is, if you wanna know about trouble in the Bible, open to the lefternmost page and begin reading until the end when John the Revelator says that anyone who adds to his words will have God add the plagues of revelation to their life, to their lives, to their life. If anyone removes any of his words, then they can go to hell, basically. Um, he says, then they're gonna be scratched out of the book of life. That means hell. So you have the beginning, Genesis. What happens at the beginning of Genesis? You go to the end and it's John saying, so, get this right, report this correctly, or all these plagues are for you. Short it, and you're going to hell. Trouble, 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 all the way through. So where does all this trouble business come from in Scripture? Where does it begin? It's the result of the fall, right? That is sort of our immediate go-to assumption. It's curses, it's bad, we disobeyed. Trouble, that's where the trouble began. Well, no, yes, no, again, kind of, sort of, but not really. It got worse at the fall. Trouble was badly magnified at the fall, but trouble was still there. I'll let that hang there while people sit there thinking, heretic, liar. In Genesis 3, Start looking at the actual narrative, and we should do this with all of the Bible verses, not just snippet something off of a bookmark, although shockingly, these verses, for the number of these verses that exist, there are very few Bible verse bookmarks that go along with them. <laughs> Find yourself a little mall store, say, do you have any Bible verse bookmarks, Bible, Bible, you know, just Bible verse stuff I could acquire? Could I pay you money for something printed on a poster? from scripture, and they'll say, sure, come over here to this section, and they will somehow bypass all of these verses, which exist in basically every chapter of the whole thing. So Genesis 3, we go to the beginning, if we want to blame the fall for trouble, bounce back and actually look at the story. In Genesis 3, we have the levying of the great curses. God tells Eve that he will greatly multiply her sorrows in childbirth. I don't want to get overly hung up on this, but I'd like to point out that he says multiply. He doesn't just say, you're going to have some sorrow in childbirth, which if it was zip, if it was going to be zip would be a natural way to say it. This by implication, I'm not trying to maintain that, oh, by necessity, pre-fall childbirth would have involved some sorrow, some pain, meaning like just physical pain. I'm not trying to maintain that, but I am saying it's a possibility. He says, I'm going to multiply your sorrows. And then he also adds the itchiness, the itchiness of the hierarchy of marriage in that passage. You will desire, your desire will be for your husband, or in some translations, you will desire to control your husband and he will rule over you. So, multiplication of sorrows and childbearing and also this scratchiness to marital hierarchy. Man is born to marriage counseling, as it turns out, as the sparks fly upward. 
<laughs> right there. Just in the curse. There's going to be friction. Adam, however, is given toil and sorrow all the days of his life. But think about that. We think, oh, toil and sorrow. I think the real kicker is the other part. All the days of your life. What do you mean? All the days of my life. This is the first moment with a real realization of there's going to be an end to it. Limitation of days. And by the way, now that you have limitation of days, we can actually we can use this phrase, all the days of your life, in a meaningful way because you're going to go kaput. It's like we can use that and we can say, you're going to see sorrow and toil all those days. It's here, you're going to die, and it's all going to be hard, all of it. And if you look at how many years Adam lived, it's a lot of hard days, a lot of hard days. And I think that for Adam, man, that toil must have been incredible. For one who had been in the garden, and then to go live for centuries with a cursed earth, for centuries having been there before the thistle was really invented, and then now you've got to do this, and every time, 400 years later, you still got all those thistles, and you still can throw back your, your memory to the time when you really, really pooched it. And this happened. So we can look at this, we can see the big curse on Adam. We can see the, the initial introduction of the ticking clock of mortality right there, all the days of your life. The days of your life, Adam, because they now are numbered. Then this comment, dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now, we're, we're kind of used to this. You know, we, we know the ritual, you know, dust to dust. We know that. But be that guy, stand there and look at the ground, look at the dust, and be told, well, that's you again. You're going back to that. I'm sending you back into the dust. So Adam and Eve get pushed out of the garden. We've got an angel with a flaming sword to chase them out of the garden. It's not like this is a minor event. They're tossed. It's bad. Multiplication of sorrows, toil, limitation of days, mortality, death, all these things show up, and yet I'm still saying that this is not the introduction of trouble. Side note, just by the way, Eve is not even named in Scripture until after the fall. It's the woman, the woman. It's like that really is her name. And then Adam calls her Eve because she will be the mother of the living. He calls her Eve after that moment. And to say that she will be the mother of the living is actually to say that she will be the mother of the dying. She will be the mother of those who die, those who fall. But because before, before that, what is this distinction of the living? The mother of the living. It's like, aren't we all the living? It's like the mother of mortals. And she is called Eve. So yes, granted, a whole lot of trouble gets ladled out on the human race after the fall. Lots and lots of it. Most of what we actually deal with is going to go back to that. But what did God give our father and mother before the fall? Are you ready for this? Trouble. With a capital T. Big capital T. Trouble. Here we are in the garden. Adam and Eve at the beginning. The beginning of the story. It's all wonderful. Yay. Happy, happy. Naked and unashamed. woo -hoo. That goes for the first 12 pages of the screenplay. That's good. That's this, you know, the setting up of the thing which will be smashed. 
You know, that's, this is one of the formulas in commercial filmmaking at the beginning. Here's the situation. Look, here's his little life. Isn't it nice? Isn't it happy? Then, you know, something gets dropped in it, usually referred to as the catalyst, which then just throws the plot down stream. So here we have the garden. It is good. We've got fish and birds and everything. It's, it's wonderful. Man and woman, happy, happy, joy, joy, and then trouble. God gives them a bloody great dragon who sets out to get them killed. Before the fall, the dragon shows up. An actual dragon. I thought this was a good place. I thought this was my little pony land, right? <laughs> no, really? I mean, seriously? I mean, think about the little Sunday school books and pictures and all that kind of stuff. This is Happyville. This is, you know, where you just pick fruit and walk around and have a great even tan. <laughs> but instead, God sends the serpent, the, the dragon, that ancient dragon shows up pre-fall. They have to fight a dragon pre-fall? There's a dragon trying to get them killed pre-fall? What is this? A story? <laughs> Rhetorical question. The fact that the serpent succeeds at the beginning is not really as interesting to me right now as the simple fact that he showed up at all. Why this dragon? What did they do to deserve the dragon? They didn't fallen. This is no judgment. It's good. And God sends them a dragon. We like to think about hardship and trouble as if it's the fruit of some ill deed. Some little seed in our heart and a lot of times in our lives. It is the fruit of an ill deed. But in this case, they're just being happy. And he gives them a dragon. The dragon is sent. Before the fall, here comes trouble. Man faced a dragon. Before the fall, man faced a dragon which had already successfully deceived his wife and planted the seeds of rebellion against God in his wife's heart. Before man's fall, the serpent had already come and his wife had already told a lie about God. She says, God says, you shall not eat of it, eat of the fruit, neither shall ye touch it. God didn't say that. She's already magnifying the restriction. God said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it. Before the fall, Eve is fibbing to a dragon, a dragon that's trying to get her killed. Before the fall, she believes a lie from the dragon about God. He's just trying to keep her from being like God's. The dragon says, oh, come on, you're not going to die. He just doesn't want you to be awesome. And that's, that's really the lie. And you can watch that same lie play out over and over and over and over again. Man, your parents are just really holding you back, aren't they? Too bad you can't be cool like us. Bummer. <laughs> same lie. Give it to a junior in high school, freshman in high school. The same lie over and Man, they're really holding you back, aren't they? Over and over and over. Those Ten Commandments, that Christianity, that church, those restrictions. All those restrictions. And shockingly, here, just this is the total sidetrack here, but I still think important. 
If you ever want to be deceived by a dragon, a quick how-to lesson of how to be deceived by the dragon, how to fall badly into sin, step number one, and this is the neat part, it's the only step. <laughs> Inflate the restrictions. Inflate the law. Because you immediately make God more of a villain. And you make yourself more vulnerable to any lies about his hypothetical villainy. So she says, you shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it. And we as Christians say, you may not ever have alcohol. And then later on, somebody's like, man, your church is crazy. Or as the youth would say, cray cray. <laughs> and do you know what? Your church is crazy. They're right. It's like you've added to a restriction and now you're vulnerable to the serpent. But back to the point here, we're in the garden and the dragon has A, showed up at all. B, already lied to Eve and had Eve believe him. Eve has already told a lie. And then even better, Eve actually walks completely into the curse of God. She lies. She believes the lie. And then she walks under the judgment of God into, directly into, thou shalt surely die. And then, unfallen Adam shows up. What the heck? At that moment, Adam comes along. I mean, look at the situation here. A, dragon, B, what are you doing, Eve? What is this? You've lied, been lied to, and you've already eaten the fruit. Thou shalt surely die. His wife already has a death sentence, and he hasn't done anything. Trouble. This is all pre-fall. Trouble. Now, this is not pre-Eve's fall. Eve has already fallen, and what exactly the narrative would have looked like if Adam had behaved correctly here is something we can speculate about, and I think we can actually know that if Adam had actually done what the second Adam was willing to do, if Adam had been willing to die for his wife, die for his bride, instead of follow his bride into death, which is what he did, I think we'd have a different story here. But the fact that he had this situation to deal with while still naive enough to be standing there naked and unashamed, and this is thrown at him, tells us a lot about the nature of God. God is an author. Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. It's sort of, you know, trouble. Man getting into trouble is like saying heat rises. That's what we're told. It's the same thing. Heat rises, men trouble. And in the grand tradition of men every, everywhere through all of time, with the exception of one, Adam faced trouble, capital T, and then Adam completely blew it. And yeah, things got a lot worse. The trouble was magnified. Sorrows were multiplied. Thistles. But if you want to think for a second that it would have been all easy living after that moment, if you want to think for a second that he would not have faced other difficulties, then you are very, very confused. Because we've already seen what? Unfallen Adam gets thrown a cursed wife who's believed a lie about God and told a lie, and also a dragon. Just starting point. Great little starting point. That's before the fall. If you'd pass that test, knowing what we know about God, you will know that the tests get bigger. The stories get grander. They build. They build. They build.
So Adam pooched it badly, as do all men. God makes trouble because God makes stories. There are villains, there are obstacles, there are difficulties because there must be a plot. That's why. He, it's like saying, why, do, why does God, why does this goldsmith God, why does he keep using fire for this ore? Why does he have to use heat? It's like, well, that's how you do it. Like, take the raw ore, but why? Can't we just do it with the raw stuff? Can we keep all the dross in there? Do we have to refine it? Do we have to make it better? Do we have to be going in a better and better direction? And this is not just God using trouble and stories for the heck of it. This is God using trouble and stories because it enables him to tell the best stories. He's telling the best of all possible stories. He's telling stories that reflect his nature, the nature of the triune love, the glory of the triune God, the level of his sacrifice, and so on. He's telling those stories. He is imaging God himself, the triune God, and so there is trouble. God made Lucifer and wove him into the story of the garden. God made Lucifer and wove him into the story of Job. God made Lucifer and wove him into the story of the cross. Does God make trouble? Didn't he mold the dust and breathe life into us? That's all we need to ask. Does God make trouble? I mean, I know he made the human race. But did he, does he really make trouble? I know he took man and said, do you know what would make this great? A woman. <laughs> Two of them. And they're going to think completely differently. It's going to be hilarious. Do you really think that Adam would have been completely unhappy communing with God? God looked at it and he looked at it and said, I, I believe, and this is not something I can say like, with any kind of authority, but I, look, I read that story and I look at it and say, there's Adam without a narrative. There he is with no plot. There he is with no one to save. There he is with no one to die for. It's just him. Problem free. Trouble free. He needs a plot. He needs a narrative. And that means Eve, someone to love, someone to die for, someone to protect. He failed. But it also means villain. After Eve. God molds us from the dust. He breathes life. He, he breathed life into Adam, into all of us. Are we not sparks rising? We are meant for trouble. Before the fall, we were meant for it. After the fall, we were meant for it. But after the fall, we are in the equivalent of intensive trouble summer school to get back on the bigger, better trouble track. Here we are, sweating it out. Short lives, dying quickly, multiple generations. It's all vanity. Look back there, you saw Adam, long life, garden, tree of life, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and a dragon to fight. We've got to get back to that. It's like we're going to get back to that place, and guess where Christ takes us? That's, that's where the second Adam takes us, back to the garden and into the big tasks, the big trouble. So now we're in intensive trouble, summer school, short lives, intense Work hard. Work hard and you'll get blessed with bigger obstacles 
I've talked to athletes before who didn't want to try to go for the next level. So you think about a, you know, a high school kid who's extremely gifted. Now, I don't, I don't necessarily condemn this, but a high school kid who's extremely gifted, let's just say in track or something like that, and they really like, oh, I really don't want to race against the bigger schools. Why? Why not? Like, do you like just sitting there beating all the small, the kids from the small schools? You don't want a challenge? You don't ever want to graduate up? It's like when you have a, like a basketball team and they don't want to try to play up, they don't want to go after people who are bigger than they are and better than they are, they don't want that, they resist that, that's just bizarre to me. Because you want to get good, you want to improve, you want to work, and you want to move up and fight bigger people struggle against bigger tasks and bigger obstacles. And that's the way God created the world. If you start doing a really good job with your life, you can expect bigger obstacles. Do really, really well with those obstacles, you can expect bigger obstacles. Congratulations, welcome to junior high. Congratulations, welcome to high school. Congratulations, welcome to college. <laughs> now you're a mom of five. <laughs> it's like, whoo. Slightly different level of difficulty, exponentially increased. But at this point, I'm going to do some definitional damage control really quickly. I thought about defining my terms early, and I thought, oh, that won't be any fun because nobody will be nervous. It'll all make more sense then. It'll be better to string it along for a while. So there are a couple of different kinds of trouble. I'm just saying trouble, big picture trouble. I'm lumping everything underneath it. But if we're going to get intelligent about this, then we're going to make distinctions. We're going to distinguish between the good kind of trouble that you, would, you, know, you should be in, the kind of trouble we all should be in, and the bad kind of trouble. And on the good kind of trouble, under that heading, you can see God trouble and man trouble. And then you can go over to the bad trouble category, and you can see God trouble and man trouble. So bad trouble. God trouble would be, oh, Jonah getting eaten by a fish. That's, he shouldn't have been there. I don't know if you've read the story. Jonah should not have been in that situation. But he was. And he got himself at. <laughs> so, Jonah got at. The great fish got sent. Who sent the great fish? God sent the great fish. This is God trouble. Is this the kind of trouble Jonah was supposed to be having? No. This is not the kind of trouble Jonah was supposed to be having. Bad trouble, God trouble, big fish eats you. <laughs> Bad kind of trouble, God kind of trouble. Well, I mean, going to Sodom. They're trying to rape angels. Fire falls from the sky. Bad trouble. God trouble. You know, God actually sent this. God smacked you with this. Bad trouble, man trouble is something like Mel Gibson's career right now. <laughs> so, well, I was sleeping around and I'm really drunk most of the time and extremely bitter and very, very hateful. But if only those people had not been recording my conversations. I'm, you know, this is an invasion of my privacy. Uh, you know, when you're, on the, when you're drunk on the side of the highway yelling things about Jews, and then later on, you're leaving recorded messages threatening to murder your pregnant mistress. I mean, yeah, you can expect to be persecuted for your faith. 
<laughs> bad trouble, man trouble. I mean, that's, that's how, you know, he made his bed. That's, that's the way it works. But good trouble. It's like, okay, so what about some good trouble? What do we see? David had himself a lot of good trouble. The kind of trouble he was supposed to have. He was being sent into this. He was being sent into it by God into particular situations. It wasn't his fault that this, I mean, Samuel shows up and how old is he? It's like, did, did David need that political nightmare? I'm just a shepherd kid. And now it's like enemy number one to the king. It's like, oh, by the way, Saul, this can't pass through your line. It's gonna go to this shepherd kid over here. <laughs> Isn't that just perfect? So that's just trouble, straight from God to David. Here you go. Good trouble, God trouble. Later on, we've got David in bad trouble, God trouble. David losing a child after having committed adultery and murdering a noble man. We have bad trouble, and it gets all complicated. Think about David's sons and how was David involved in their upbringing, (laughs) that that kind of thing. It It gets tangled. It gets all messy, but it does break out into you're in the kind of trouble you're supposed to be in or you're in the kind of trouble you're not supposed to be in. And if you're in the kind you're supposed to be in, it's coming from man or it's coming from God, or you go over here and it's coming from man or it's coming from God. Then, of course, if it's coming from man, it's still coming from God, but just not as directly. The kind of trouble we can get into that would fall under these categories, and this, these kind of things would go under all of these categories. Health, you know, sickness, disease, car wrecks, broken legs, kidney failure, tragedies of any kind, money problems, heartbreak, family heartbreak, broken marriages, lost children, children leaving the faith, resentments, envy, persecutions. You can go down the list, and as you hit them, you realize, wait, I don't know where, to, where do I put that? Like, where do I stick these troubles? Is that a God trouble or is that a man trouble? Is it a good God trouble, bad God? Like, what is it? How do we know what trouble to cause and how? How do we identify the trouble we're in and know how to respond to it? How do you know when you're the protagonist or the antagonist? How can you know what kind of trouble is currently surrounding you? When you say, the bulls of Bashan, that's my problem. And all your friends say, or the fact that you slander everyone. You know, so the lonely eighth grade girl who's not invited to parties anymore. Bring me the Psalms. I want to go through Psalm 22 because I relate to that right now. And it can be ridiculous. How do you know when you are the antagonist? How do you know when you're the protagonist? How, how do you know when you are capital T trouble for someone else? And when you are actually suffering righteously? Read the stories of Scripture. Break them down like a lit critic. And I should sort of footnote that and say, not really. Not like any lit critics I know. Break them down like C.S. Lewis would break them down. He was a lit critic. Modern lit critics, no, skip it. Read the stories of scripture, break them down like any kind of story expert would. Read them closely like you'd read a novel, the narratives of scripture. Study the stories of reality, of history, of things moving around you, the current political situations. Study those stories and contrast them with the stories of scripture. Scripture stories, saturate, 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 know these things. Apply to the stories around you till you begin to see the patterns. Yeah, wow, 
Look, pride goeth before the fall, it turns out. Just just amazing, shocking. Can't believe I didn't notice this before. And then once you get good at that, lastly, you have to make the big leap, the most difficult leap, and you have to begin to apply those patterns to your own life and try to objectively see who and where you are in the story. Here I am in my narrative, and I can't get a job. Why? How do you cry out to God in that situation? Here I am, my marriage is falling apart. Why? Why? Like, what phase are you in? Should you cry out to God in repentance? Is this an amazingly large porn problem? Then don't go to Psalm 22. It's like, unless you're actually, you know, willing to cast yourself as the bowl of Bashan here for your wife. You know, can she read the Psalm and you are actually, you know, one of the raging dogs here? And that's an accurate description in the narrative. And are you still casting yourself as the protagonist? Read the Bible stories, read scripture, apply it to the world around you. See the world happening around you and realize that the same author is telling both stories. This one right in front of you and that one about Samson. This one right in front of you and that one about Esther. This one on the news and that one about David. The same author is telling all of these stories and the same patterns reveal themselves. Because the same author is unpacking his nature, as unpacking his justice, his love, his sacrifice, his mercy into these stories and his judgment. Read the stories, be willing to apply what you see to your life. Now, there are pitfalls here, and everybody can say, like, whoa, so we're all heroes, right? Is that what I heard you say? Yes. We are all in our own movies, personal movies. You need a black leather trench coat now and sort of a throbbing soundtrack. Well, you walk in slow motion down the sidewalk. It's like, no, incorrect. 17-year-old male. (laughs) That's not the story. And you're not going to be able to run up walls in slow motion dodging bullets either. Not going to happen. Not the story. There are obviously pitfalls when you begin to try to apply narratives to yourself. So you read the story of Samson, you're like, so wait, never tell a prostitute what your secret strength is. (laughs) Right? Is that what I'm taking away? Like, okay. (laughs) You know what? Sure, I'll start there. Good, you got one. Like, now let's, let's move on, keep moving. Keep moving through the narrative. And that is, incidentally, of that whole story, that's the part that confuses me the most. Dude, (laughs) what are you you doing? (laughs) If you needed to know that men are morons. (laughs) Not not Samson uniquely. Uh, Yeah, no, it's, it's impressive. It's impressive there, and he's not unique. When you read the stories of scripture and you start trying to cast yourself in them, it can, it can become kind of complicated, it can become difficult. But you're supposed to do it. All scripture is God-breathed and useful in many, many ways to you. Read it, saturate yourself in it, see the patterns and narratives around you and apply to yourself. Be willing to see yourself being the sting pot of the story. The victim, the passive aggressive, the fusser, 
Be willing to see yourself as the Pharisee who is trying to show someone up who happens to be the Messiah. And so they hit him with the tricky problemo because they think they have him stumped. And then he makes them look dumb. And they move from trying to make him look dumb to saying, we have to kill that guy. It's like, that's what, that's what we're looking at. We come in, <laughs> trick question, let's kill him. Like that's, that's the narrative. Do you have somebody that you really don't like that really bothers you? Have you ever snarked at them? Have you ever tried to make them look dumb? Has it ever backfired? And did you leave more resentful of them? Possibly. Like if, you're, if you're a snarky type person, that's the kind of thing that could very well happen to you. You could do something you should not have done. It can backfire on you and you can still blame that person. You can still escalate your resentment of them. There are pitfalls in casting yourself in a scriptural story. You see, the thing about me is I'm very much exactly like the Apostle Paul. <laughs> I'm good with tents. So I know I'm apostolic. People are dumb, and so people will make dumb mistakes doing whatever kind of exegesis they set out to do. There will always be failures, but it doesn't get us off the hook for trying. We can fail at it, but we need to actually learn and go this direction. Now, reform types, most people are going to see themselves as much, much shinier people in their own narratives than they actually are. They will, we will absolutely put a nice halo around ourselves and our own personal narratives as humans, but then reformed types just knee-jerk hard against that. Really hard. Romans 1! Romans 1! Worm, 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 wallow, wallow, wallow. Oh, I'm so evil. And we know people who are in both camps. People are constantly beating themselves up and people who are constantly puffing themselves up. There are stories for both of those types. There are times when we need to be able to speak like the psalmist in Psalm 44, awake, sleeper, redeem us. I mean, imagine that. Like, you're gonna say that to God? You're gonna get on your knees and pray to God, wake up. I am being killed for you. I am suffering for you. Wake up and redeem me already. Get me out of this already, because I'm doing a good job. So take this dragon away. I'm doing well here. Move it along. Now, in a brief stint I did at Liberty University, I ran into Bible professors saying basically, Psalm 44, totally inappropriate. Never, ever. In fact, kind of blasphemous. Don't do it. Here we are adding to the restrictions again, like more restrictions. He said, don't touch it also and you're setting yourself up. We have a psalm in which the psalmist says, I am righteous, defend me, wake up, awake sleeper. I mean, it, I can't imagine. I mean, it, that's a tough one to get there because first off, it's like, whoa, like, but I have so much guilt. It's like, well then dump it off where we're supposed to dump it off, at the foot of the cross, I then go back to Psalm 44. The guilt is taken care of, but I would prefer to hang on to it if you don't mind. I like it. See, I'm, I'm intending to do it again. 
Like, well, then there's, there's your problem. Can you pray Psalm 44? If you prayed it, would you, uh, you know, feel a little uncomfortable? Go unload your guilt at the cross. Take it to the second Adam, who did to the dragon what the first Adam was supposed to do, and come back. And say, awake, sleeper. I am clean. I am righteous. Redeem me. Get yourself into the right spot of the story. Now, we could see some completely dirty, vile human jumping right to the, oh, wait, come on, wake up, sleeper. I bought this 10,000 square foot home and a horrible balloon mortgage. Bail me out. And we could say, like, okay, you're getting the story wrong here. Like, there's some lessons to learn. Like, you're not quite that part of the ark, but you can get there. But it's going to take a while. I'm probably not going to end up with the 10,000 square foot house. Get yourself into the right spot in the narrative. See what your next action is. Is it the crying out in Psalm 44? Or is it the falling on your knees at the cross part? Is it the being baptized part? Being clean, coming into the second, the bride of the second Adam, the fallen Eve, the Eve who fell first and could have been saved and now is. If you're reading stories in scripture, like I said, you start the lefternmost page and you go through, you run into all sorts of trouble, trouble, trouble. And we have a nice little trouble hall of fame. There's a lot of it out there. Jonah, I already mentioned. Job, what is the big narrative lesson from the book of Job? Don't say you're sorry. Really? I mean, Job went through the ringer. And all sorts of very pious religious people came around and said, Job, just say you're sorry. Come on, let's go, man. You've got some sins. Let's confess. Work with me here. And Job says, no, I won't. In our great postmodern age of passive-aggressive victimization, Job would not do well. People would be flopping. I'm going, I'm offended. <laughs> he made a finger puppet of Muhammad. And all sorts of pastors would gather around and say, just say you're sorry. It's a bad testimony. Job says, no. Do not repent of something that cannot be repented of. To apologize for something that is not, doesn't involve any kind of guilt or culpability is to lie, is suddenly to have guilt and culpability. Job had nothing to repent of there. For the whole beginning of that whole process, Job had nothing to repent of. Samson, nice little trouble hall of fame. The guy ended up blind in a kamikaze pillar pusher at the end. And it's a great and glorious story. It's like the man comes back around, blind, hands on the pillars, and kills more Philistines than he killed in his entire lifetime in that moment. Follow-up beat. Samson is not still blind. David. David had every kind of trouble you can possibly have. David had people trouble with Saul. David had some brother trouble. David had giant trouble. Lion trouble. Bear trouble. I mean, Discovery Channel trouble. <laughs> then the giant thing's more like the cryptozoology kind of trouble. Sociopolitical trouble. Hungry enough to eat some sacred bread trouble. Wife trouble. Son trouble. David had himself a pile of trouble. And then, you know, in the middle of it, he murders a guy and commits adultery. 
David went through every phase of guilt and innocence, persecution and judgment. I mean, he, he felt everything. Saul had trouble. Saul had this little stupid shepherd boy with the red face. I mean, look at that stupid red face. Look at him. Doesn't need the armor. It's untested. <clears throat> Says the shepherd boy to the king, your armor is untested. Implication, have you been fighting much, Saul? <laughs> you know, it could mean David himself had not tested it. I prefer the first, <laughs> the first spin. It's more Davidic, I think. No, thank you. I'll hit him in the head with a rock. It's going to work great. And I'm going to go out there and actually tell the dude I'm going to feed him to the birds first. And then I'm going to, with my little red face. My annoying red face. That's Saul's trouble. Saul made one mistake. One mistake. And Jonathan, his noble son, fully qualified to be king, is just out. One mistake and out, and it's this shepherd kid. The shepherd kid makes a whacking great big huge mistake. People die, it's dark, the judgment is hard, and his son, Solomon, is the most glorious king that really the earth has seen. Saul had trouble. You know what, Goliath had himself some trouble too. I mean, he was just playing the role he was given. I've got six fingers and I'm huge. And I'm willing to bet you that Goliath inappropriately cast himself in the story. It should have been easier. We all look at him like, Goliath, you've got six fingers and you're huge. You're the giant. Right? No, he's the hero. He sees himself as the hero immediately. Lot had himself some trouble of every variety. Joseph had himself some trouble. He had dreams and famines. He, had, he was framed for you know, adultery, rape. His brothers sold him into slavery. Tiny, tiny little bits of trouble. Joseph is another guy who stands up and says, I'm innocent. I am righteous. You know, this, this dragon is not something that I earned for myself. This is trouble that I'm given to overcome, not trouble that has shown up as any kind of judgment. Did Noah has, have some trouble? Yes. A, just logistical trouble. <laughs> I'm just going to say, also, living on a planet where the number of righteous people is really pared down to that, then where are you gonna find good help as you build this boat? <laughs> How are you gonna catch these critters? Like all, wait, every kind of animal? Every kind of animal in a boat. Yes, so then you can start the whole world over because that's not gonna be difficult. Piece of cake. We're, we sort of end the story at yay, except for Ham was kind of tacky and Noah got drunk once. I think, I think Noah was drinking the wine of astonishment is what he was drinking. <laughs> like, here I am with a big wooden box and a whole bunch of animals on a very moist planet. Paul had himself some trouble. Paul had fleshly, just thorn in his flesh difficulties. Paul, think about this, the Apostle Paul the Reformed community has always been very respectable. They don't like troublemakers. So the Apostle Paul himself had fundraising difficulties. If you think about the fact that Paul literally had to make tents 
to make ends meet while dismantling the Roman Empire, while tying torches to the tails of foxes and letting them go through the world, while traveling and planting churches, while getting shipwrecked and bitten by a snake, while having all these things go on, riot, stoning, revival, like all this stuff going on, can't even get full-time financial support. I'm sorry, Campus Crusade is not gonna let you on staff until you have full-time support. <laughs> Deal with it, you're not called. Christ had trouble. Christ, obviously, the second Adam, the one who came, the one who was innocent, the one who faced the dragon, and not just faced the dragon, but faced the dragon with a whole lot more momentum behind him than Adam saw. Adam had a dragon, a garden, and one dying girl. Christ shows up with what? The whole place at that point is just in tattered ruins. The whole place. The Jews, the ones entrusted with the faith and faithfulness and the law, what are they doing? Well, they're the ones who are going to set them up to die. That's the state of the world. Jesus is, in a very real way, of course, a second Noah. The cross is, in a very real way, the second ark. We all know about Jesus' trouble, but we should learn a lot more from the stories. You know, the stories about whips and the stories that involve snarky little comments at righteous people or at people who thought they were righteous. Very tidy young men who had kept the law. What else can I do? Ah, give everything away. See ya. There you go. You must be born again. What? You know, that's a nice little rooftop night chat. Go forth and be born again. <laughs> Here's this, this guy. Wait, he's a genuine seeker. Like, you're going to hit him with that? The seeker? It's like, he really just, and I, that was obviously great for Nicodemus. And the rich young ruler, it was the exact right thing they needed to say. You know, Christ needed to say. But you see him really punch people hard who believe themselves to be righteous, who have cast themselves in the wrong role in the story. Usually, they have fancy hats. And this is just a side note in God's narratives. Doesn't like fancy hats. You pick up on that pretty quickly. Also, doesn't like funny mustaches. Skip that. Just in history, whenever a villain shows up, God almost always gives them a funny mustache. <laughs> and it's, I'm serious, like, I, in screenplay meetings, people can say, like, isn't this kind of a little bit mustache twirly? It's like, yeah, it is a little bit mustache twirly. Because villains like this are a little bit mustache twirly. They get the thing going, they stroke it a little bit. Hitler, really? Is that, that one right there. I'm going to conquer the world. And God says, with that on your lip. More than that, he doesn't just put it on Hitler's lip. He also says, and you're going to think it's a good idea. God tells great stories. Pick up on the stories that read all the narratives in which Christ has dialogue and pay attention to it and see if you think you'd be comfortable in that moment if your pastor fired off like that to some other religious leader Whoa. or to some seeker, some kind of backhand to a seeker. And then see what he does to tax collectors and prostitutes, to people who are actually heavy with their own guilt, the people who are not self-righteous but are just looking for release people who are looking for redemption. There's a very different conversation that goes on. And of course, the flip happens in Christian churches where that little self-righteous, excuse my French, prick of a youth pastor 
gets all the treatment. Oh, isn't he wonderful? Look at him. I mean, he's got exactly the right necklace, the hair. It's like so accidentally, just like that. <laughs> and he's so meaningful. He gives great hugs. So we're going to respect him. And over here, the battered girl, you know, the down and out girl with a self-loathing problem, the girl is so clearly unliked and unlovely. She's the one who's like, oh, like, take her away. You know, give me that guy with some, like, he's wearing the appropriate skinny jeans for the current year. He's in jeggings. Because <laughs> men are wearing those now. The women, they're done with them. But the men, just taking off. Athanasius had himself a good story. Santa Claus had himself a good story for a while <laughs> until we ruined it. St. Nicholas, you know, at a theological gathering managed to punch someone in the face who denied the divinity of Christ. Full blow to the melon. Inappropriate church gathering behavior. Important discussion. No, it's not. Pops him. Of course, he's off giving presents and apples to poor kids also. Martin Luther had himself a story. Tyndall had himself a story. You and I and all of our kids will have ourselves stories. And we have to place ourselves in them. There will always be trouble because there is no story without them. If you have a life without trouble, then you have a bad life. If you have a life with no good story from left to right, it's like, well, I was in the garden, you know, just there. It's great. It's easy. Good times. It's a, it's, it's a life badly lived. Get off your couch and go do something that's going to cause you some problems already. Go make some trouble. Go find yourself a plot that makes sure it's the right kind. Good trouble. I don't care if it's God trouble or man trouble, but make sure it's on the good trouble side of things. We all have stories, and we should all have trouble in our stories. We should all identify how to behave in relationship to that trouble, and then we should go forth and conquer, expecting afterwards there to be a sequel. Some uncomfortable rules for troublemakers. I'm going to try to say some things to wrap up, just bullet points here, to make you squirm and think I'm completely wrong. Uncomfortable rules for troublemakers. Number one, step on the toes of the self-righteous and don't even feel kind of sorry about it. Step on their toes without becoming them. You need to not become the self-righteous where it's like, oh, look at that guy over there, so much better than him. That would be a failure, a narrative failure. But be happy to just walk right across their toes. Look at the church right now and look at how many of them are so desperately wringing their hands and compromising as quickly as they possibly can on every single issue in which there's any trouble. Oh no, trouble, attack. And then they take the advice of Job's friends. We did something wrong. We need to retranslate the Bible to remove the masculine pronouns immediately. <laughs> we did something wrong. Homosexual marriage can be deeply loving. We did something wrong. We did something wrong. We did something wrong. Compromise, compromise, compromise. It's going to be a really bad testimony if we fight the dragon. I mean, what's the dragon to think of us? Mean-spirited, says the dragon. And we say, oh, really? I'm sorry. Put down the sword. Back away quickly. Don't want to embarrass the church. Step on the toes of the self-righteous. Show mercy to those heavy with guilt. Two, never apologize, in parentheses, 
just because you're in trouble. If you want to use trouble as the indicator that an apology is necessary, you've believed lies. Grow a spine. Be willing to look at people and say, but I'm not sorry. And I'm not supposed to be. That's a, that is hard to do for Christians because we are so obsessed with being nice. Niceness is, you know, the golden rule. You knew that, didn't you? You know, a little powdered sugar on top. The third sacrament. <laughs> Never apologize just because you're in trouble. If God himself can dish out devastation after devastation on Job, and Job can sit there and say, I've got no apology to make. Nothing to repent of. And the task gets worse and worse and worse. And, you know, Job's story at the end, there's a lot of wrangling there. But I think Job stays. I mean, Job does really well through this whole process. And for a long time, he's standing there saying, I am righteous. If the psalmist can say, I am righteous, take this away from me. Job can. We should be able. We should learn from that. Paul, I'm sure, hurt many people's feelings. I know this because he hurt contemporaries' feelings also. I've had plenty of people say to me, oh, usually women. I have a real problem with the Apostle Paul. I think he has a bad attitude. <laughs> okay, great. Rachel Held Evans, a feminist Christian, professing Christian feminist, will say that she harbors a grudge against the Apostle Paul. She will also say things like, when the story of Jericho, or when kids are singing Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, she will whisper to her husband, genocide. It's like, okay, great. So you're on that team. You're over there. Wrong part of the story. Never apologize because you're in trouble, just because you're in trouble. You might have plenty to apologize for. If so, do it immediately. Take it to the cross. Be willing to see yourself as guilty. Take it to the cross and be washed. And then come back and say, I am righteous because, well, I'm in Christ. I have his righteousness. Be fearless. Walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil. Practice. Get into trouble on purpose with your eyes open. You know what? I've been at this job for a very long time, and I think that no one here actually even knows that I'm a Christian. Turn your chair around and be like... Hey, Johnny, are you an evolutionist? Because I think that's a pile of crap. <laughs> okay, welcome to trouble. Here it is. Here it is. And they say, what do you mean you don't think monkeys turned into people? You cannot work here anymore. You cannot make photocopies for us. <laughs> Get into trouble with your eyes open. If things have gotten really comfortable, if things have gotten kind of apathetic and soft, like your life is just sort of a large beanbag, get out and move on. Pick a fight. Find a place where you know you're going to get in trouble. Say something that is completely true, completely within scripture, 100% on target, and then let people squeal. Get better at this. Be willing to scale up gradually. Gradually. <laughs> Start in the shallow end, pass the test, then move, then move on. Slowly, it's like swimming lessons. Just sort of glide easily into trouble. Start the, the gently, little things. If you're in God trouble, always go toward him, never away from him.
Be willing to make a whip of cords. Be willing to use it. That might not ever, you might never have a situation in which you would use, and this is especially for men, but applies to every Christian. If you just take any kind of physical confrontation off the table completely, then you're adding to the restrictions. Read the narratives. How often do righteous men in Scripture get themselves into physical confrontations, places where they need their physical strength? I'm not saying go pick fights. Absolutely not. I'm saying put it on the list of possible things that could happen to you in a story. I might have to actually get physical. I might have to be physically courageous because you know what? Christians in the past have actually had to die. This is not an imaginary narrative. This is not an imaginary anything. This is for reals, as the kids would say. My kids, for reals, or even for realsy cats. It's really happening. You're really physical. You will be really hated. That hatred will be real. Abortion is physical. All sorts of things are physical. This world is be willing to get into physical trouble. Now, those that in our actual in our society, that'll be rare. It won't happen often. But you can't just take that off the table as if it's, you know, one of the Ten Commandments. Don't ever actually use your body. Be willing to tear the gates out of a city wall and carry them away. Did I mention fearlessness? Fear no man. Fear the man. Fall seven times and rise back up. The wicked will sink beneath calamity. That's something from Proverbs, rift off of Proverbs 24, 16. The righteous fall seven times and get back up. There's a narrative description. Pride goeth before the fall, but the righteous fall seven times and still get back up. And the wicked will sink beneath calamity. Does calamity break you? Which side of that verse are you on? Rise back up. Back in the story. Feast joyfully in the presence of your enemies. Have joy. Have laughter. That's part of not fearing them. You can't just say, I'm not scared of you. You actually have to be, would you like a glass of wine? Because I'm not scared of you. I'm really not. There's no intimidation here. And all this, love your enemies. That sounds good, right? That's back to happy My Little Pony Land. Love your enemies. Know that if you actually love your enemies, doing so will not turn your life into a cupcake. I have a friend who actually accosted a man in a grocery store who is bragging loudly. This guy was much larger than, than he was. He's behind him in line and was bragging with obscenities about how he paid to have his beep, rude term for his girlfriend cut today. I mean, in an abortion. Like, so he's, he's telling the whole grocery store with swagger, had to have my cut today. And so my friend turned to him and actually got in his face, walked into him with his chest and says, he basically tore into him, completely tore into him and told him he's not a man at all. It's like, you're weak, you're nothing. You're standing here bragging about killing your own offspring. Like seriously, you're pitiful. There they were, six foot eight guy, six foot two guy, going, come on. They took it outside. Is that inappropriate? They didn't brawl, they took it outside and continued on with the, you know, the, the rooster <laughs> <laughs> maneuvering. And the guy left ashamed, ashamed with guilt hanging on him. That is the right kind of trouble, fearless trouble. 
Love your enemies, but loving them, that's love. Loving them is not actually going to make your life frosting covered. Raise fearless children full of laughter. Feed them with good stories full of trouble with a capital T. Give them a fierce love for the courageous, for the bold, for the selfless, and teach them that there is no guilt for being in the right kind of fight. Give them a holy fear for their maker and no other. Do this and you will have tied torches to the tails of foxes. Sit on your porch with some sweet tea or some scotch and watch them race through the vineyard, spreading trouble. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. That was a message from our audio collection titled Makers, Grace Agenda 2012. If you'd like to hear the rest of the talks, you can purchase them at canonpress.com.